Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 6. This isn't a baptism text per se, but it certainly speaks to this particular occasion. Our focus this morning will be verses 11 to 12, but I want to read beginning in verse 3 to the end of the chapter. 1 Timothy chapter 6, the apostle Paul is writing to his young ministerial companion named Timothy. So beginning in verse 3. If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words, from which come envy, uh, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself." Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and uh, pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses." I urge you in the sight of God who gives life to all things and before Christ Jesus who witnessed the good confession before Pontius Pilate that you keep this commandment without spot, blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ's appearing, which he will manifest in his own time. He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and glory, or honor and everlasting power. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give, willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come, that they may lay hold on eternal life. O Timothy, Guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Well, let us pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you as well that in the ordinance of baptism, we get to see the gospel, a demonstration outwardly of what you have done to these young people inwardly. We acknowledge with the prophet that salvation is of the Lord. We look forward to that day in the eternal state when we stand before the throne of God and before the Lamb, and we ascribe all glory and honor and praise unto you, world without end. 
Until that time, may we find the Lord's Day a great and a blessed day. May it indeed cause us to to rise with joy on Sunday and to gather with your sheep, with your people, and cause us to, to glorify and to honor you. And Lord, we ask that you would encourage our hearts, that you would build us up in our most holy faith, that you would be merciful to any and all who've come here this morning that are dead in their trespasses and sins. We pray that you would awaken them through the preaching of your gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit, that you would call them out of darkness into marvelous light to lay hold of Jesus Christ and the forgiveness of sins by him. Forgive us now for all sin and transgression. Cleanse us in that precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Guide us by your Holy Spirit, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we come to this last chapter in the book of 1 Timothy, essentially what the apostle does is he indicts false teachers, or we'll call them heretics as we move on through the sermon. A heretic is somebody that engages in false teaching that has damnable consequences. A heretic isn't something, uh, somebody that just differs a little bit with you on a point of theology, on something that isn't essential in terms of acceptance with God. A heretic distorts the gospel to the damnation of his own soul and to the damnation of those who hear him or receive him. So the apostle speaks very uh, sternly and, 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 and harshly against such. So he does that in verses 3 to 5, and then he warns of the dangers of covetousness in verses 6 to 10, which attach themselves to these heretics. These heretics think that they can make money through religion. And then as well, he gives, or in the rest of the chapter, Paul gives Timothy specific commands. He exhorts Timothy to be a faithful man of God in verses 11 to 16. He then tells Timothy to instruct the rich concerning their situation in verses 17 to 19. And then he ends with a final charge in verses 20 and 21. So that's a bit of an overview of the chapter itself. But as I said, we're going to focus specifically on verses 11 and 12. Now, there's something we need to appreciate before we look at this passage. In this section, Paul is not telling Timothy, who is an unbeliever, on how to get saved. In other words, he's not telling Timothy that the way to acceptance with God is by fleeing these things. The way to acceptance with God is by pursuing these things. The way to acceptance with God is by fighting this fight. And the way to acceptance with God is is, is by the way that you lay hold on it. He's dealing with Timothy, who's a believer. He's dealing with Timothy, who's already a Christian. He's dealing with Timothy, who he refers to as man of God. So again, the emphasis is not in verses 11 and 12, how to get saved. But rather, this is what it looks like when a man is saved, when a man is conquered by sovereign grace. We know that the Apostle Paul was, in fact, the champion of sovereign grace. He himself was not seeking salvation by Jesus Christ the Lord. In fact, he was doing just the opposite. He was trying to destroy the church of God. He rejected the claims initially that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah or the Christ. And so Saul of Tarsus, armed with extradition papers, was on his way to Damascus to arrest those who were worshiping God through Jesus Christ and bring them back to Jerusalem so that they could be punished by the civil court. Well, on that way to Damascus, the Lord Christ comes to him and the Lord Christ saves him and then the Lord Christ puts the mission upon him to go and preach the gospel of free and sovereign grace indiscriminately to every creature everywhere. And that's what he took up. And the great emphasis of the Apostle Paul is that we're accepted by God, we're saved by God, not because of things that we do or contribute to God's work, but we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. 
He was, in fact, the apostle of free and sovereign grace, along with John, along with Peter, along with the prophet Isaiah, along with Jeremiah, along with Abraham, along with everybody in Scripture. It is obvious that by our works, we will never attain heaven. By our works, we will never achieve God's uh, uh, acceptance. It must come by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's make sure we understand that. He's not telling Timothy how to be saved. He's telling Timothy, rather, as a man of God, how to function as a saved man. So let's look at our passage. Paul gives Timothy a series of four exhortations. First, the necessity to flee wickedness in 11a. Secondly, the exhortation to pursue righteousness in 11b. Third, the command to fight the good fight in 12a. And then finally, the necessity to maintain steadfastness in verse 12b. But notice in the first place, with reference to the necessity to flee wickedness, there's a contrast. Paul does this in his letters to Timothy often. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3 for just a moment, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 1 to 9, the apostle highlights the character of men in the last days. And the last days is the time frame between the first and second coming of the Lord. It's not in our future. It was upon Timothy. Because Paul is able to tell Timothy, uh, uh, from such people turn away, in verse 5. And so the characteristics of those who are in the last days, who find themselves in the church, they are professing godliness, but they deny its power. They're wicked. They're vile. They're wretched. In fact, very quickly, notice what he says in verse 1. But know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now this sounds a lot like Romans 1, where the apostle portrays or describes the heathen. Those apart from the grace of God. Those apart from the revelation of God in the gospel. But here it's within the context of the church. Because again, notice what he says in verse 5. These wicked people, they have a form of godliness, but they deny its power. And from such people turn away. So Paul underscores what's going to happen in terms of even true churches. These kinds of persons are going to find their way in the midst. These lovers of themselves, these lovers of money, these lovers of pleasure will find themselves among the professing people of God. And the apostle tells Timothy to be on the lookout for them and as well to avoid them. And then notice in verse 10 the contrast. But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. Same thing that he does in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So he highlights the heretics in verses 3 to 5. He underscores their covetousness in verses 6 to 10. And then he says in verse 11, But you, O man of God, flee these things. In other words, don't be a heretic. Don't be a false teacher. Don't be the sort of guy that is indicated there in verses 3 and 4. Notice, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, notice what Paul goes on to say. I mentioned, I think, last week or the week before, Jesus would probably be kicked out of most churches today. Certainly Paul would, because this isn't nice. This isn't kind. This isn't saccharine. This isn't sugary. This isn't palatable. This isn't pleasing. 
Listen to what he says in terms of these men who distort and twist the gospel of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 4, he is proud. He knows nothing, but he's obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reviling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such withdraw yourself. There comes a point in time where it is to cast your pearls before swine. There comes a point in time where it is to cast your pearls before dogs. Now, God is most generous and most benevolent and calls us to preach the gospel to every creature. But somebody who's antagonistic, somebody who is violent, somebody who continues to refuse and reject, somebody in this class of heresy, there comes a point where we withdraw from them. And so the apostle is encouraging Timothy in that vein. Notice in verse 11, but you, O man of God, flee these things. Timothy didn't have to ask the question, well, what things? Because he's listening. He's paying attention. Don't be like the guy who twists the gospel. Don't be like the guy who adds works to salvation. Don't be like the guy who's covetous. Don't be like the guy who thinks that religion is a means to prosperity or to gain. Certainly a, peculiar, a fitting word for our generation where the so-called health, wealth, and prosperity gospel has infected a multitude. If sin is killing its thousands, that twisted version of God's grace is killing its tens of thousands. And we need to make sure we understand that God demands truth in his pulpits. God demands not a distortion, not a twisting, but an exposition of God's word uh, uh, accurately. So you, O oh man of God, flee these things. So notice, there is the special function of Timothy as a church office. This title of man of God finds its taproots in the Old Testament. Moses, Samuel, David, Elijah, Elisha, etc. were men of God. In the New Testament, we see Paul describe Timothy in that way. Timothy, again, was his ministerial companion. Timothy was met by Paul in Acts chapter 16. Paul definitely approved of him right away and accepted him into the cause. And now he is exhorting him to flee these things. So specifically for the man of God who preaches in the pulpit every Sunday, but for all of us generally. Paul doesn't want any of us to be caught up in covetousness. Paul doesn't want any of us to be caught up in distorting the truth of God's gospel. Paul doesn't want any of us to duplicate or replicate the various things that we see condemned there in verses 3 to 5. So for all of, that, all of us, we need to flee these things. And that picks up a biblical emphasis. The godly man is not only seen by what he pursues, but by what he flees from. Remember that instance where Joseph was in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar's wife was coming on to him day by day. The text is specific and conspicuous. It was day by day. It wasn't just a one-off, but each and every day, this this wretch, this Jezebel, this, this, this horrible woman, I don't want to get too bad here with, with young people around, but this, 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 this mother or wife of the year kept coming on to him. What does he do? He continually resists. He continually rejects. He continually flees from this, even to the point where he actually flees. He actually runs out of the house. That's what Paul is telling Timothy when it comes to these sorts of heretics in the church. Flee these things. 
Don't have truck with them. Don't entertain them. Don't sort of allow them in. Don't pat them on the back and see them as sort of a subset of Orthodox Christianity. They're not that. They are outsiders. They are heretics. They will condemn and destroy the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. For a minister of the gospel to put his hand favorably on the hand of a heretic is to violate God's holy word. And we need to take these things seriously. So again, specifically the man of God in terms of preaching and pastoring, but all of us, generally speaking. The heretic is condemned for his doctrine, his character, and his covetousness, and Paul does not want Timothy to go down that road. Notice in 2 Timothy 2, same sort of an emphasis on what Timothy is to flee. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Flee also youthful lusts. Timothy, don't give in to these things. Don't pursue these things. Don't go down that particular road. Again, if, if sin is damning or killing its thousands, sexual sin has killed its tens of thousands of men in pastoral ministry. And the Apostle Paul says, flee these things. Flee youthful lusts. Don't get caught up in it. Don't get flirty. Don't get texting. Don't get engaged in that sort of thing. Timothy, flee those things and be faithful in your pursuit after righteousness. The Proverbs are filled, again, not only with the wise man as he pursues good and godly virtues, but it's filled with the wise man who is fleeing those things, who sees the danger ahead and he, and he hides himself. He doesn't go and court it. In Proverbs chapter 8, the father tells the son, or seven rather, tells the son, do not go near the door of her house. He's talking about the, the strange woman there. And I've always thought that very peculiar information or very peculiar instruction. He doesn't say don't go into her bed. He says don't go near the door of her house. Why? Because if you go near the door, guess what the next step is? You're not that strong. You're not that holy. You're not that righteous. You're not that pure. In Proverbs 1, my son, if sinners entice you, what does he say? Listen to them, hear them out, give them, you know, some thought. And no, do not consent with them. There, there is this aspect of fleeing godlessness that the people of God need to imbibe. But then notice, secondly, the exhortation to pursue righteousness. So it's not just fleeing from it. Sometimes people give up bad things, and that's to be commended at least at one level. I think it's good if a guy gives up crack. I think it's good if a guy gives up embezzlement. I think it's good if a guy gives up white-collar crime or fraud or whatever sorts of things he's into. I, I'm not going to say no, continue in it. But just because a person gives something up doesn't mean they're pursuing righteousness. Just because somebody doesn't go near the door of her house doesn't necessarily mean that he's nurturing a vital communion with his own wife. So there are these twin aspects. Flee from the godless and pursue the godliness. And that's the emphasis of the apostle here with reference to Timothy. Here's what the heretics look like. Here's what you need to flee from. And here's what you need to pursue. But you, O man of God, flee these things. And then notice what he says. He says, you are to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. The man of God is not only identified by what, by what he flees from, but also what he pursues. Again, 2 Timothy chapter 2 at verse 22. He says, flee also youthful lusts, but pursue righteousness, faith, love, peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. We need to understand that twofold dynamic in Christian sanctification. 
Again, we need to put to death the deeds of the body. Nobody's doubting that. Uh, he, uh, Romans 8.13, if by the Spirit you do mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. But in terms of Christianity, the killing of the sin is to be replaced by doing the right thing before God. Paul sort of captures this, this essence in, in Romans 13, 14. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the benefits. Put on the protection. Put on those things that are identifiable with our blessed Savior and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So as far as Scripture is concerned, yeah, we need to flee, but we also need to pursue. And it's those righteous virtues that Paul outlines here. And again, just look at the list. Nothing here should be surprising. Well, I can't believe Paul wants Timothy to pursue righteousness. Of course he wants Timothy to pursue righteousness. I can't believe he wants him to pursue godliness. Of, of course he wants him to pursue godliness. And then notice faith, love, patience, gentleness. William Mounts makes the observation in the pastoral epistles, and the pastoral epistles are letters, epistles, written to pastors, hence the name pastoral epistles. First Timothy, Second Timothy, and Titus. Mounts makes the observation that love occurs 11 times in the pastoral epistles. Its frequency attests to one of the basic problems in Ephesus. Paul's opponents are without love. When you want to boil it all down, What's wrong with the heretic? Well, he doesn't love God, and he certainly doesn't love men. If somebody's going to make their money off the backs of another person's damnation, that's not generated by love, brethren. That's hatred. That is corruption. That is degeneracy. That is as bad as it can get. To make your money off of the damnation of rubes that have fallen under your purview and actually pay attention to you, there's got to be a special circle in hell for such a class of godless men. And so the apostle says to pursue righteousness, to pursue godliness, to pursue faith, to pursue love, to pursue patience, to pursue gentleness. And there are other places all throughout the New Testament that sort of confirm or affirm this emphasis throughout. So it's not a one-off. Paul wants Timothy to be a special class of, of man of God. No, it's for all the people of God. This is what we should be pursuing. This is what we should be after. We should be fleeing heretics and heresy, and we should be pursuing after these virtues. Now notice thirdly, the command to fight the good fight. The command to fight the good fight. Paul uses martial language, military language, to depict for us the nature of the battle. Where do you think he got that? Uh, Jesus, the, the Old Testament, everybody that ever walked the earth before him that tried to live godly in Christ Jesus? What happens when you try to be faithful in a faithless world? Do people applaud you? <laughs> do they praise you? Oh, yeah, you're just doing a bang-up job here. You're just doing great in your pursuit of righteousness and love. We're, we're, we're so envious or we're so jealous that, that, that you're like, no, they hate it. They despise it. It's that whole scene in John chapter 3 when Jesus talks about the darkness and the light. The darkness doesn't want to come to the light. Why? Because its evil deeds will be exposed. Cockroaches, when you turn on the light, I don't know this by experience, I've read about this. Uh, when you turn on the light, the cockroaches bail. They flee, they run. Why? because they don't want to be in the light. And that's what happens with reference to the believer in the world. If we are living, and the bar's pretty low right now, 
just be against killing babies and, and old people and, and, and infirm people and now drug addicts and be against the mutilation of children? You're, you're going to stand out as an odd duck. What, what do you mean? People don't have the right to chop off perfectly good body parts when they're 12? No, they don't have that right at all. And that we think they do is a horrible, horrible sort of uh, 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 an indictment upon this present evil age. So again, you don't have to be, you know, John the Baptist out in the, you know, in the wilderness eating locusts and wild honey. You don't have to be Elijah on Mount Carmel, you know, challenging the prophets of Baal. You don't have to be John the Baptist standing before Herod saying everything you're doing is wrong. It's a breach of God's law. Just try to be a little faithful in this present evil age and what's going to happen? They're not going to like you. So what does that mean? It means you're involved in a fight. I think a lot of Christians are finally waking up to that reality. You, you mean they don't love us? You, you mean they are against us? You, you, you mean they, they, they do despise you know, the, the, the Lord God Most High and His Christ? Yeah. So we've been kind of saying for a while here and starting, starting to come into sharp uh, 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 view. So notice what he says here. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Now, in terms of this language, look back at 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1, again, to see this language by Paul, I'm sorry, verse, uh, 1 Timothy 1.18. Notice in 1 Timothy 1.18, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may what? Wage the good warfare. Of course, the apostle is speaking metaphorically. He's not telling Timothy, I want you to, you know, do your reloads. I want you to get your bandoliers. I want you to, you know, shine up your Sherman tank. I want you to, you know, go out there and, and in the name of God, engage in jihad and, and win Ephesus for Jesus. That's not what he's saying. It's a metaphor. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They're mighty for the pulling down of strongholds. We need to remember that, brothers and sisters. We don't advance Christ's cause by bullets. We don't advance Christ's cause. Again, as the church, I'm not speaking as to individuals. If they come after you, you have the right to defend yourself. The Bible envisages that, and it does claim that we have that right. But in terms of the mission of the church, we're not to advance the cause of Jesus by violent force. So Paul is speaking metaphorically, but listen to the metaphor, that by them you may wage the good warfare. Notice in 2 Timothy chapter 2, specifically at verse 3. Again, he's speaking metaphorically, he's speaking analogically, he's speaking in terms of some, some images that suggest themselves for the apostle to compare Timothy's ministry to. Notice, he gives this general admonition in verse 1, you therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And then he gives Timothy a very, very specific duty as a pastor as a man involved in leadership in the church. Notice what that duty is in verse two. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's inherent in the pastoral ministry. Duplicate yourselves. In other words, the kingdom of God isn't supposed to stop when Paul dies. The kingdom of God is not supposed to stop when John Calvin dies. The kingdom of God is not supposed to stop when C.H. Spurgeon dies. Those men are to train other men, identify them within the congregation, train those men, see them fit and qualified for pastoral ministry, get the church's approval and affirmation, and then bring them into that role of preaching and teaching and ministry. 
And then notice what he says in verse 3. You therefore must endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one engaged in warfare entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please him who enlisted him as a soldier. And also if anyone competes in athletics, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The hardworking farmer must be first to partake of the crops. Consider what I say and may the Lord give you understanding in all these things. You need to be devoted like the soldier, you need to be disciplined like the athlete, and you need to be diligent like the farmer. In other words, Timothy, if you, under God, are going to be instrumental in advancing the cause of Jesus Christ, it's not with military might, but it's by faithfulness and steadfastness, waging the good warfare and fighting the good fight. And of course, Paul signs off his uh, ministry in this same sort of language. You can turn to 2 Timothy 4, verse 7. Well, verse 6 sets it in context. Actually, we need to go back to verse 1 to set it in context. The last corporate command that the apostle gives to the church. He gives Timothy some specific commands later, uh, later on in verses 9 and following. He basically says, you know, bring the cloak in verse 13 that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come and the books, especially the parchment. So t uh, Paul is in his second Roman imprisonment. Paul knows that he's going to die. This isn't like the time he writes Philippians. In Philippians, or uh, the time that he writes Philippians, he, he thinks there's the potential. He could die. It's his first Roman imprisonment in about A.D. 60 to 62. This is later on. This is the mid-60s. Nero is gone. Nero is a beast. Nero has, you know, left the reservation, as we might say. He's burning Christians as torches in his garden party. He's just a foul, wicked, beastly man. He blames the Christians when the city of Rome burns down. He is vicious and animated against the church. So Paul knows that his time is short. He knows that he's going to die. This isn't a hypothetical. This isn't a potential. This is his last letter, and he knows it. So look at verse 1. I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Notice the last corporate command. Be the nicest fellow any city has ever seen in terms of the pastor. I'm not saying pastors shouldn't try to be nice. But that's not the main imperative. Have coffee with everybody because that really shows that you're nice. Again, not against coffee with everybody. But the imperative of the apostle to his young ministerial companion is to preach the word. Why? Because God is well pleased in the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. We don't advance the cause by guns. We don't advance the cause by tanks. We don't advance the cause by F-15s. We advance the cause through prayer and the proclamation of God's holy word. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. We ought not to be surprised that the last corporate command by the apostle to Timothy for the church as a whole is to preach the word. At some point in the 20th century, we took a different route. We wanted cheerleaders. We wanted CEOs. We wanted high-powered businessmen to run our churches. We need faithful preachers, theologian pastors, men who understand scripture and theology, those who labor in the word and in doctrine, those who are worthy of double honor. Paul tells Timothy, preach the word. And then he gives him two reasons why he's supposed to preach the word. The first is found in verse 3. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. How do I deal with this group of people that doesn't want sound doctrine? Preach to them sound doctrine. 
It's kind of like your child. How do I deal with this child that won't eat his protein and fat and all he wants is sugary treats? Feed him protein and fat. But, but, oh, he'll eat it. I guarantee you. may take a little while, but he will eat it. What do we do when the church wants puppets and ponies and programs back in the day? I don't even know what the current iteration is. What do we do? Do we cater to them? Oh yeah, we're going to get rid of the pulpit and put a big easy chair there and I'm going to just sit and tell you stories and we'll have a nice cup of coffee. Preach the word. They will not endure sound doctrine, Timothy or, or Paul, so then give them more sound doctrine. God knows what they need. They need the protein and the fat. They don't need sugary treats. That's what got them into the mess that they're in. And then the second reason, again, you see it marked out by the word for. So preach the word. Verse 3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Notice the second reason in verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. He knows he's going to die. What's the final word of the apostle to his young ministerial companion? Preach the word, Timothy. Don't mess with that. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Don't go and adopt military might or power. Don't go off and engage in holy war or jihad, but you preach the word. It is that vehicle that the Lord has chosen among reading the Bible, not suggesting that people can't read their Bible and get saved, but when you trace the book of Acts, typically it comes when the apostles go to the synagogue and preach Christ and Him crucified, when they declare the truth as it is in Jesus. So Paul knows that he's going to die. And then notice what he says in verse 7. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. It shouldn't surprise us in 1 Timothy chapter 6 at verse 12 that he calls his ministerial companion to do the same thing. Fight the good fight. Calvin made the, made the observation, for carelessness and self-indulgence uh, self arise from this cause, that the greater part wish to serve Christ at ease, and as, it were, and as if it were pastime, whereas Christ calls his servants to warfare. Again, find where, you know, you sign on the dotted line. God, in his grace, opens your heart. He gives you the graces of faith and repentance so you can lay hold of Jesus. And then something bad happens in your life. And you say, but, but wait a minute, sir. I didn't sign up for this. Many a recruit in the U.S. military and probably here in Canada has said the same thing. You know, they give you this dream sheet where you'd like to be stationed. Guess where everybody picks? Not Thule, Greenland. Guess where sometimes people end up? Thule, Greenland. Guess what they say? But I didn't want to go there. It doesn't matter what you want. The needs of the military dictate. Now, I'm not trying to be a harsh, sort of mean fellow, but God may bring that to you, brethren. He may bring that to me, but I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, you did. Back in Matthew 16, Jesus talked about people who followed him, and he used the imagery of taking up your cross daily and following him. You, you remember that? Oh, yeah, but I didn't think it would mean difficult people in my life. <laughs> well, guess what? Guess what? Fight the good fight. 
So Calvin is bang on. Carelessness and self-indulgence arise from this cause, that the greater part wish to serve Christ at ease and as if it were pastime, whereas Christ calls his servants to warfare. But notice that Paul doesn't just say fight the fight. It's a good fight. We never need, we never need, uh, never must forget this. It's not, you know, slugging out this fight in some horrible cause. It's a good fight. It's God's fight. It's Christ's fight. He empowers us and enables us to engage in the fight. In fact, we are privileged to, to get to engage in this fight. Remember the apostolic church in about Acts 5 when they were beaten by the Sanhedrin and when they left from there, you know what they didn't do? Call your MP. These guys just treated us poorly. Now, I'm not against calling your MP. I'm not. But that's not what they said. They rejoiced. Why? Because they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Huh. That's just so contrary. Not to you. I'm, I'm right here. I'm preaching to me here. Rejoice when bad things happen? Yeah, that's what James says. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That is not the way we operate. That is the way that, 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 that we want to avoid as far as we're able. Now, I'm not saying run out and try to get persecuted. Run out and try to get thrown down a well. That, that's not necessarily bright either. But we need to understand that the fight is good because it is God's fight. Again, Calvin, he says, if earthly soldiers do not hesitate to fight when the result is doubtful and when there is a risk of being killed, how much more bravely ought we to do battle under the guidance and banner of Christ when we are certain of victory? That's an assured thing. We may not see it in our lifetime. You need to reorient yourself that way, right? Well, if I, I don't see it, well, brethren, we are in this for the long haul, right? We hope and pray and try to labor and, and, and move and have our being in such a way that, that our grandchildren's grandchildren's grandchildren will have Free Grace Baptist Church of Chilliwack so they can come sing Psalm 148 and praise God Most High and listen to the preached word and then go live like they're supposed to in this present evil age. We pray for that. We hope for that. We want that. But we need to understand that this is, in fact, a fight. When he says the good fight of faith, I think he's stressing there. Faith comes in the New Testament in one of two ways, objective and subjective. Objective means it's the content of the Christian faith. It's the content or the, the stuff that we're supposed to believe. The subjective is when we are called to hold on to it. And I think that's what he's talking about here. Fight the good fight of faith. When he says, lay hold on eternal life, I think he's redoubling his efforts there. The lay hold on eternal life is not so that you can be accepted by God. This has already been given to you by God, but steadfast perseverance means you will lay hold on it. You will keep a firm grip. You'll fight the good fight of faith. You won't waver. You won't doubt. You won't start to, well, I don't know if it's really good to be in this fight. I don't know if it really is something that I'm fit for. If you are Christ's blood-bought child, if you have the Holy Spirit, you're fit for this fight. You need to embrace it, you need to receive it, and you need to run with it. That's what Paul says. Fight the good fight of faith. So in other words, make sure, Timothy, that your faith isn't wanting, that your faith isn't waning, that your faith isn't growing cold. 
How do you think he's supposed to feed that faith? He's supposed to feed it through the scriptures. He's supposed to feed it in the prayer closet. He's supposed to feed it in the public worship of God. It's not esoteric. It's not mysticism. Go out to Mount Sham, forget your phone, and just tune out and let God invade you. Now, brethren, again, it's not wrong to go up to Mount Sham. It's not wrong to go meditate upon God. But it's the means of grace that God has ordained that are calculated to feed our faith. And that's his emphasis. Fight the good fight of faith. Now, fight the good fight of, the faith, uh, of faith in the objective sense as well. Jude 3. Contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. I want to make sure you know that. It's not just your faith in Jesus that's supposed to grow. But it's the faith as the deposit of Christian doctrine that we all need to be engaged in to fight for. In other words, we ought to pursue truth because that's what God uses to bless his people. I've already mentioned the engagement and the fight. It's 2 Corinthians 10, 4 and 5. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. And that brings us finally to the necessity to maintain steadfastness. Again, don't, mess, don't, don't, don't mistake what Paul is saying here. When he says, lay hold on eternal life. He's not saying, so that you can be saved. He's saying, you've got this because God has given it to you. Don't let it go. Don't let it go. Pretty simple, right? Don't let it go. Yes, pretty simple. But at times it can be a bit of a challenge, right? Especially when you live in a, in a perverse age, when you live in a sinful age, when you live in an age where there's a lot of compromise. And oftentimes that compromise comes in the church or the professing church. I mean, they're flying the flags. They're, they're doing the thing. They're, they're engaged in this sort of stuff. Well, you need to hear the words of Jesus in Revelation chapter 3. He speaks to the church in Laodicea, and he says, because you're neither hot nor cold, I'll spit you out of my mouth. Now, he picks up a theme that you find in the Old Testament. We've seen it in our studies in the book of Leviticus. Specifically, in Leviticus chapter 18, God uses none too righteous Israel to go into Canaan and to judge the, 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 the less righteous Canaanites. It wasn't vindictive punishment on the part of God. Just go in and destroy those Canaanites. They were sinners. They were wicked. They were vile. They were wretched. When Israel does this and takes the possession of the land, and then she apes the conduct of the, the Canaanites, she gets vomited out of the land too. God uses Assyria, and then he uses Babylon to, to, to throw up the people right out of that land. Well, Jesus, when he says, I will vomit you out of my mouth, again, it's not without a context. Land in the Old Covenant theology was central in terms of Israel's life. It was, it was by inheritance. It was by the promise of God, contingent upon their faithfulness, contingent upon their, their covenant obedience. But Jesus says to the church in Laodicea, because you're neither hot nor cold, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Now, commentators get really weird there because they say, well, Jesus would prefer you to be an outright atheist. That's not what he means by cold. The city of Laodicea was flanked by two cities. One had uh, hot springs, like Harris said, and the other had a cool and refreshing sort of a, a, a spring. By the time water was piped into Laodicea, it was lukewarm. Lukewarm isn't good. We either like hot coffee or cold water. Most people, and you might say, well, I like lukewarm. You're about one in a billion, so you know, this isn't really for you. But when it was piped in, it was lukewarm. He's using a convention that they would be familiar with and say, if you're not hot or cold, 
If you're not bringing refreshment in terms of cold to your community, again, do what you're able to do in terms of your vocation. If you're not bringing the hot medicinal uh, healing waters of the gospel, if you're not doing anything, if you're not being faithful, if you're not fighting the good fight, if you're not laying hold on eternal life, you're betraying that you're not really His. And it's in that context, He says, I will spit you or vomit you out of my mouth. So back to our text, notice. Lay hold on eternal life to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. The heretics made a profession, but it was false. The heretics made a profession and tried to profit from it, but it was false. The heretics made a profession, but had no power of godliness. Timothy, conversely, or by contrast, is to lay hold on eternal life. He is to lay hold onto that with which he was called by God. So in other words, God calls him, God gives him, and then God calls upon him to live in a manner consistent with that. Now, if you had been ten, uh, attending our evening services, you'll understand this concept. In uh, Ephesians 4, for instance, in Ephesians 4.1, Paul says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel. Let your conduct be worthy of the calling with which God has called you. So basically, here's what you were, dead in your trespasses and sins. Here's what you've become by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ, and here's then how you're supposed to live. Walk this way. Don't walk the way the Gentiles walked. Walk in love, walk in light, walk in wisdom in Ephesians chapter 5. That's what he's emphasizing here. Lay hold on eternal life, and then that next clause, to which you were also called and have confessed the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now that confessing of the good confession is a bit of an ambiguous thing. It could have been at his baptism. When Timothy was baptized, it was a public declaration of what God had done inwardly. Could have been his ordination when Paul and others laid hands on him to fit him, not because they're magic, but it was the means by which God the Spirit comes upon Timothy to set him apart for the work of gospel ministry. Or it could just be his overarching life and conduct and faithfulness as he moved in and about the people of God that they had, the, the, the many witnesses had seen his faithfulness. So just back up then, to which you are also called. That refers to the effectual call. Now, the Bible, theology, makes this distinction between what we call the effectual call and the outward or general call. Jesus tells his church to go and preach the gospel to every creature, indiscriminately. Go tell all men everywhere that God is holy, you're not, and that Christ has come into this world, he lived, he died, and he was raised again. If anyone believes that message, he will have everlasting life. That's the outward or external call. The Bible speaks of an internal or effectual call. In other words, the Holy Spirit working upon the heart of a man or a woman or a boy or a girl. God's good. God's gracious. God's merciful. That's what he's referring here to. So again, it's not lay hold on something in order to appropriate it for yourself. It's already been given to you. And your stewardship now is to lay hold of it and don't let it go to move and live and have your being in such a way that is consistent with your calling in Christ Jesus. Paul uses the language in Romans chapter 8. We know verse 28. We know that all things work for good to those who love God, to those who are the what? The called according to his purpose. And then he goes on to say, for whom God foreknew, these he also predestined. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his Son. 
The ones who were predestined, these he called. Those he called, he justified. The ones who just are justified, he will glorify. So the emphasis here in verse 12, at the latter part, to which you were also called and have confessed, is on the effectual call. Now, when you consider Paul the Apostle, we're coming to a close here. We're not going to be here all day. Just, I love the pastorals. Let me go like a horse in the meadow, and I, I want to tromp through them because it's just so much fitting and appropriate stuff for the church today. But, but when it comes to the life and ministry of Paul, I already kind of alluded earlier, way back when at the beginning of the sermon, about Paul's salvation. What happened? He had papers in hand. He's going to Damascus, and he's going to arrest people. Now, he says it later in his own testimony, men and women. There's something extremely perverse, or not perverse in a sexual way, but just wicked that you'd arrest men and women just to haul them back to Jerusalem so they could stand trial and so that they could be punished for their faith commitment in the Lord Jesus Christ. But what happens on that road? Jesus comes to him. It's pretty amazing. That's not usually how it happens, brethren. It's usually very imperceptible. You sort of pass from death unto life. There's a moment where, yeah, now I, I believe on Jesus. Now I, I understand Jesus. Now, now I get it. Forgiveness and, and a righteousness that, that now avails with God. But when you think of the conversion of an apostle Paul, you, you go, wow, look at the powerful grace of God. Some in this church have, have shown or demonstrated that powerful grace of God. Sit down sometime at coffee and ask them, tell me your conversion, tell me your testimony. Well, I was engaged in this and I was doing that and I was going here and I was going there and, and God seized me and God pulled me and God gave me grace to believe the gospel. And we go, wow. But what about a Timothy? What about a Tobiah and a Benjamin? I'm not picking on them, but I am suggesting that when they're brought up in a Christian home, where they haven't gone out and done all that stuff. They haven't been out in the distant country. They haven't been longing for food that's being given to pigs. We don't see that power as vividly, do we? See, Paul does. Paul says the same effectual grace, the same effectual call, the same power of God that arrested him and stopped him on the road to Damascus and enabled him to be a preacher of the gospel is the same grace that God gave to Timothy. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 3. I thank God whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears, that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also." Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. But you must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. The effectual call is as necessary for one brought up under a godly Eunice and a Lois 
as it is for a man who's got papers to go to Damascus and arrest the people of God to bring them back to Jerusalem where they will likely be imprisoned and executed. In other words, that anybody is saved is a testimony to the glorious and amazing grace of God Almighty. There's this mindset. Well, you know, it's only the guy who's gone out and done all those things. We want him to share his testimony at coffee. We don't want to hear from the person that was brought up in a Christian home and can't really remember the time. There was no light bulb. It's just imperceptible. There was a time I was dead in my sins, and now I'm alive, and I'm believing in Jesus. Okay. Is that our attitude? Okay. Praise God. That's miraculous. Regeneration. We just sang it in, in, in the hymn by Wesley. Listen to the language of the effectual call. Sort of put into song. He says, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Whether you're 25, whether you're 55, whether you're 105, and you've lived a profligate, godless, vicious life, or you're brought up in the the home of a Eunice and a a Lois, and they've taught you the sacred scriptures from your youth, and around six or seven or eight or 10 or 12 or whatever, you believed. It's the same uh, effectual call. It's the same grace. We celebrate it. We sing of it. We need to appreciate it when it happens in the lives of our young people. And brethren, brothers and sisters, may I say, we pray for that. We pray for that. God is great. He saves the prodigal, even from the pig slop. But he's great to save them before they go to the pig slop, before they go to the heroine, before they go to the, to the, to the prostitute, wherever it is they might end up. Pray for God's grace in the lives of your children. That should be priority number one for every parent, every grandparent, every single day. Not binding, oh, you're telling us legalistic things. You hear what I'm saying? Make this a prayer. Make this a priority. Make this the thing that you plead on behalf of your children. A righteous man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. You may be dirt broke, but you know what you have? You have what Peter and John said to that man they met on the way to the temple. What's the man say? He says, sirs, do you have any silver or gold? What does Peter say? We don't have any silver or gold, but what we have, we give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ the Lord, rise up and walk. We may not have a lot of money in the bank, but we have a great Savior and a great cause and a good fight, and we should pray to hand that down to them and praise God when we see them come forward and want to identify publicly with our Savior in the waters of baptism. This is a day for rejoicing, a day for celebration, a day to understand God's graciousness. Now, I want to end with two thoughts And that means two thoughts. First, the elements involved in eternal life, the effectual call. Again, we can't change their hearts, but we can certainly put them in the places where they need to be. Schlep them to church. Commenting on John 3, when Jesus likens the spirit to the wind. The wind comes, you don't know where from, and you don't know where it's going. But Spurgeon says, when you see that gust, Open the window to let it in. Where do we bring our children? We bring them to the family altar. We bring them to the church. Family altar doesn't mean a popish idea. It means rather that place where you have family worship. We bring them under the sound of God's 
gospel. And then with reference to this good confession, it's done in baptism, but it's done in the totality of one's life, in the presence of many witnesses, being faithful day in and day out. And brethren, that doesn't mean spotless, holy perfection. We're going to sin. You know, there's a bit of a powerful testimony when you tell somebody, man, I didn't live up to what I'm supposed to be. Please forgive me. I, I sinned. I shouldn't have done that. Pe people don't know how to process that. I don't do it with, you know, the proud virtue, hum the, the proud humility. I'm just, you know, so humble. I, nah, nah. But if you mess with somebody and you betray your calling in Christ, there's nothing wrong to say, please forgive me. Be nice if some of our government leaders would learn that brief phrase. We, we made a mistake. Okay. I don't expect infallibility and perfection, but I expect a bit of ownership. The one who covers his transgression, Proverbs 28, 13, will not prosper. But whoever confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. So again, the call here isn't to holy, harmless, spotless perfection, but it's a faithfulness. It's to laying hold on eternal life. It's to fighting the good fight. This acknowledgement comes in baptism, comes through the life of the believer. And then I want to end specifically with reference to Debeah and Benjamin. The nature of the good fight of faith. You need to remember this. And I'm not just talking to them. Everybody should pay attention here. No, okay, I can just tune out now. The reason for the fight, the reason for the fight is because it's God's fight. You don't want to be that guy that goes out and starts fights over your deal. No, no, don't do that. Start fights or engage in the fight that is God's fight, God's good fight. The necessity for the fight, I don't think that's tough. We've got the world, we've got the devil, and then we've got our own remaining sin. So there is a necessity for us to watch and pray and to fight. As well, the perpetuity of the fight, it will be present until the consummation. In other words, if you signed up and you thought, well, I'm going to have a week or two or five of difficulty and warfare, but then it's going to be easy sailing. Hate to break it to you, brethren. The Christian life, oftentimes, not for everybody, God is good. There's not constant misery and torment for every one of God's people. I'm not suggesting that. But until that day when Jesus comes again in glory to judge the living and the dead, there's going to be some heartaches. There's going to be some hardships. There's going to be some challenges. The manner of the fight. How do we fight the good fight? Dependence upon the Father. Faith always in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's not, a, again, a mystery. Well, how do I fight this good fight? You, you told me I can't use guns and tanks and F-15s. How do I do it? With the triune God and the power of His glory. And then the goodness of the fight. Never lose sight of that. We, you know, we should smile in the midst of the fight. I don't know if Samson did when he was dispatching those thousand Philistines with the jawbone of an ass, but knowing his character, he might have. He liked to pun, he liked the limericks, he liked to you know, compose little riddles and that sort of thing. I mean, there's a sense where it's the, the good fight of God, so we have to be encouraged that we're actually in it. And then finally, the triumph in the fight is not ultimately up to us, and that ought to give us great encouragement. If it was up to us, we would certainly fail. Listen to the psalm, Psalm 11, uh, 60, verses 11 and 12, and then again replicated or duplicated in Psalm 108, 12 and 13. He says, give us help from trouble, for the help of man is useless. Now, he's not condemning the church all participating. There's a context, but listen to what he says. Through God we will do valiantly, for it is he who shall tread down our enemies. Let us never lose sight of that. He will tread down our enemies. Maybe not in our lifetime, maybe not with our eyes seeing it, but it's going to happen. 
Psalm 110.1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And then that great, famous, wonderful, biblical declaration by the apostle in Romans 8.31b, if God is for us, what can man do? If God is for us, who can be against us? So fight the good fight, believer. Unbeliever, look unto the Lord Jesus Christ in faith and you will have everlasting life. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We see that the man of God here is a fleeing man. He's a fighting man. He's a faithful man. And we pray that you would help us to be likewise. Give us grace to grow in our understanding of your word. Give us fidelity to your cause. And give us that, that joy in being called as servants of God most high to fight this good fight in this present evil age. Cause us to do it in a manner that is consistent with your word. And give us grace in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit to engage as we are able and as we are called. Bless Tabea and bless Benjamin. I pray this would be an encouragement for them and that they would look back on this day with great fondness and that they would go forward in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And we